This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Our guest today is distinguished journalist, editor, and author Peter Copeland. His career has taken him around the world and given him opportunities to manage news businesses across all kinds of platforms. Peter's latest book is both a personal story and a valuable guide to the best practices in journalism. The book is Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter. Here, Peter tells the story about how he became a reporter and how he learned the journalism values that matter more than ever and how he had to juggle his personal life, his family life, and all of the pressures of being a reporter. He'll talk about how through trial and error and sometimes in war zones or other challenging situations, he struggled to be fast, accurate, and fair. And he'll share lessons learned from a lifetime of chasing stories and also talk a little bit about the challenges of reporting in today's difficult market. Peter, thank you so much for joining us here today on Jazzed About Work and also talking about your book, which I loved. The book is Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter, and I, I learned a lot and totally enjoyed hearing about your adventures. They started back when you were a cub reporter in Chicago, and one of the things that fascinated me right from the beginning is you described yourself as kind of an ordinary, okay student, kind of interested in politics, not very career-driven. All of a sudden, you had this opportunity to be a reporter, and it's like something hit you. You became born again, it felt like, a very committed journalist. Could you tell us about how you sort of fell in love with journalism and, and what you were doing as a cub reporter? I had worked a little bit as a college newspaper reporter, but only for a semester or two. Uh, and when I got out of school, all I knew was I wanted to do something meaningful with my life, and I, I wanted to do something important, but I didn't know what it was. I, I thought maybe I would go into political action or uh union organizing, something like that. I, I, w I didn't know. And I was working a summer job up in northern Michigan. I met a man who took an interest in me and my future and saw something in me that I hadn't seen. And he turned out was the publisher of the Chicago Tribune and said, you know, if you'd like to try journalism, you, you should. He said, you're, what you're interested in is what journalists do. So I, I gave it a try. I mean, that was such a fortunate break that I got. I, I wish that something like that could happen to everybody. You were so lucky. Yes, yes. And uh, um, I, I, I had never studied journalism, so they assigned me to a young reporter at the City News Bureau of Chicago, which was a wire service owned by the Tribune at the time. And it was a training ground. It was sort of a boot camp for journalists. They assigned me to a a more experienced reporter, and I shadowed her for four days. And that was pretty much the extent of my training. She said, okay, uh, you're on your own now. And I was walking 
middle of winter in Chicago, one of those really cold days. And I saw smoke from to the west of where I was. And I called the office and I said, is there a fire in Uptown? And they said, yep, it's coming in over the radio now, go. And they were listening to the police and fire radio in the office. And I, I, I didn't have, this was in the days of pay phones before the internet. I ran as fast as I could to the smoke, got there before really the fire engines got there. They were just pulling up as I arrived and the, there was an apartment building that was in flames. I, I saw people hanging out the window trying to get away from the heat and they were, they were dropping babies down and small children down to people below, the four stories below who were catching them. And everyone was screaming and, and the fire was popping and it, the smoke was blinding and I, I was overwhelmed, but I just ran towards the building and I, w I was taking notes, got everything I could think of, ran, looked for a phone to call the office because Theo, the woman who had trained me, she said, the most important thing is you got to get the story in. It doesn't matter what you know or what you've seen unless you can file the story. You have to tell everybody else. That's your job. So I, I banged on doors until a woman let me in and she didn't speak much English. I could tell from the way she looked at me, but I made a phone gesture with my hand. She pointed me to the phone. I called the office. They said, okay, we're going to give you a rewrite. And I waited and a woman picked up and she said, this is Holly. What have you got? And I, I started like hyperventilating. I mean, <laughs> there are people jumping out of the building. There, there, there are babies being tossed. There's, there are people dragging themselves through the snow. She said, wait, wait, wait. How many trucks and how many pumpers? Do you, do you not hear me, what I'm telling you? <laughs> I need to know how many how many firemen are responding. And so I said, okay, I, I, what's a truck and what's a bumper? She said, well, the, the trucks are the ones with ladders and the pumpers are the ones with hoses. Okay, so I look out the window, I called, called, told her what I saw, and then she asked me all these questions about, you know, when did it start? What was the address? I didn't even know the address of the building. Okay, I wrote down all these questions. Go, go find the chief. Okay. So I ran out. I saw this guy. She told me the chief the chief would be wearing a white hat. So I I saw this guy with a, a white hat on. I went, all right, hey, chief, what do we got here? Like the big shot reporter, right? And he looks at me, pathetic. Son, he says, I'm not the chief. I'm the chaplain. And I so embarrassed. So I, I ran over. I found this other guy who was a chief who was wearing a white hat. He was the actual chief. He starts screaming at me to get the F away from here and get the F out of his life. And I, he's got a fire. His guys are inside. So get out of here. And so that, at this point, I'm just shriveling up. Oh, my goodness. But a bunch of other reporters arrived at that point, And they had a TV camera that was on. They were, they were taping. So the chief all of a sudden starts behaving like a the firefighters that you see on TV and he's talking about the, how it started and what's happening and where the injured are going. All these questions that Holly had asked me to get. I got the story, filed everything. When I finally went back to the office, the, there was this chaos in the office all the time, especially when a big story was happening, like this fire was big and everyone was yelling at each other and the typewriters were clanging and the fire and police radios were going. We had these teletype machines that clacked and dinged. But I heard this voice over the all news radio station that they also kept on at full blast. And it was a story reading 
a journalist reading a story about the fire. And it w- I could tell from the words that it was my story that I had filed to Holly. And I thought, oh, this is so great. This is like my own story coming back at me. It was a complete rush. And from that minute, really, I was hooked. So as you were telling that story, and I was kind of riveting, and it was riveting to read, I was thinking, you know, this could go either way. For a lot of people, this would be the worst day at work ever. Did you have some of those feelings right up until you heard the story, or did you just know as soon as you started running around that there's something to this? I'll I'll actually tell you about another young reporter who, in a similar situation, he was an intern working for me when I was now a grown-up uh, Washington bureau chief. And on the day of 9-11, he was a New Yorker who was in Washington as an intern, a college intern. His mother and his grandparents were journalists, and it was in his blood. He was destined to be a reporter. I sent him up to New York to cover the story there because we had people in Washington covering the story at the Pentagon and elsewhere. He started to, he got up there, he started to ask people questions and he couldn't do it. He, he said, I, I feel like they're suffering and I'm intruding. I, it just doesn't feel right to me. And I told him after, I said, if, if you don't feel good covering a story like that, then you should really not do journalism, that it's not for you. It's not for everyone. And luckily, he pivoted and and went back to school, studied finance. He became very successful. He's very happy. He doesn't regret it at all. But it wasn't for him. For some reason, it was for me. It's not for everybody. The people who do fall for it fall deeply and forever. I I know what you mean. I was a journalism student. And for me, it was going and um, maybe covering um, some sort of local government meeting or uh, some kind of issue. And what I always wanted to do is I wanted to, to fix things. I wanted to speak up. I wanted to enter the dialogue. And I thought, you know, this, this isn't for me, kind of sitting back and watching intently. I wanted to be able to talk too. But what I think is so how intense that I see with young journalists, where they make a shift, is somehow they realize it's important. They get almost uh, a thunderbolt that tells them there's there's something important here. There's a mission. Did, Did you start to get a sense of mission this early? Yes, because the place where I started City News was a legendary boot camp that trained great journalists and the culture was so strong and so pure that you couldn't help but pick it up it's sort of like joining the marines or uh, some austere religious order that they don't even have to tell you the rules because you absorb them and you just watch and try to imitate what other people are doing and that way you pick up the skills, but also more deeply the values. And everybody there thought that it mattered. It mattered more than anything. My husband, the journalist, sometimes trying to explain 
to people why he's a journalist for life, regardless of what he's doing as a job at this particular moment. And he said, think of it as a religion, that the values become so much part of you that that they drive everything. Is, th- is that how Absolutely. you feel? Yes. And I I felt that. And then there in that religion, there are sects. Okay, there's a sect of police reporters. They're super intense. There's a sect of copy editors. They're intense in a different way. I got to join the sect of foreign correspondents who are the ones that are far from home, usually alone, often in a scary place. But the bonding that we have is beyond anything else. It, it's uh, partly because of the danger and the loneliness you gravitate towards other people that are in the same situation. And they can be reporters from anywhere in the world, uh, any age, any media. It, it doesn't, it's the, the mission that we share that brings you together. So the way you became a foreign correspondent, the path from Chicago was at, at some point, Somebody told you, you've got to get out to a local paper. You've got to get out and work your way up. And then maybe one day you can come back to Chicago. And so you you took a job in El Paso, which, of course, is on the border. And you sort of um, edged into thinking like a foreign correspondent as you learned Spanish. Is that right? The funny thing about El Paso is for most people for centuries, it was the path going north. It was the the city on the border was called El Paso del Norte. It was the path of people coming from the area that's now Mexico up into the, what's now the United States. For me, it was the opposite. It was El Paso was like this window on Latin America. It was right on the edge of where the United States touches Latin America. And to me, it was the pass to the south. And I I spent two years in El Paso and fell in love with the language and the culture and learning new things and then convinced the paper, which really also is completely lucky and sounds like a story from another time, convinced the paper that they needed a bureau in Mexico City and that I should be the bureau chief and they bought it. That's amazing. Uh, You are a lucky guy. Some things just have fallen right for you. But um, you also must have some facility with language because you started pretty much cold, didn't you? You didn't know Spanish, and all of a sudden you were um, not only speaking Spanish, but you wrote that when you spoke Spanish, it made you feel like another person. How was that? I am surprisingly, maybe, uh, I guess a lot of reporters are introverts, and we force ourselves to be out there. And we know that it's good for ourselves to be out there and asking people questions. The, the job is you have to meet new people and ask them questions. That's the whole job. For an introvert, that's difficult sometimes. There was something about Spanish and maybe uh, Mexican culture that felt lighter to me and uh, lighter in the, in the sense of not being such a burden. I, I didn't feel so constricted. And I... Fortunately, I wasn't afraid of making mistakes. One of the weaknesses people have learning a second language is that they're ashamed of making mistakes. Then you'll never learn. The only way you learn is when you speak. You you can't just learn listening. So I I love speaking Spanish. And and I got a kick 
out of uh, people thinking, oh, he can't speak Spanish because he's a white guy from Chicago. And then when I did, they were thrilled. And there were older women at the paper who loved the fact that I was trying to learn Spanish, and they tutored me. And the more time I spent speaking Spanish, the better at it I got. And then I started to get stories in Spanish, and that helped too. Um, but I'll, I will say that there was some tension at the paper because I was this, again, white guy from Chicago. I was taking Spanish. I convinced the paper to give me a couple of weeks off so I could go to Mexico City and study Spanish. And I paid for my own way. I, I paid for the classes. But the paper gave me the time off. There was a Mexican-American reporter named Joel Vera at the paper who was actually more experienced at journalism than I was and had grown up on the border and was bilingual and bicultural. He said, basically, that's not fair. Why don't you send me to London so I can learn English better? As a joke, but I got the point. And I, he ended up becoming one of my great teachers, but it, it was... It was awkward for a while. It must have been a bit awkward, too, starting out in Mexico City as a bureau chief. Um, you didn't have an infrastructure to support you. And not only was this a, a foreign culture and a language you were still learning, but you were still learning how to manage the process, weren't you? Oh, absolutely. I... I, I I had to learn how to uh, transmit stories from abroad and also how to cover an entire country. That was the that was the hardest, scariest part. I had covered car accidents and fires and press conferences. I covered the mayor of Chicago and I covered some big stories on the border with immigration and drug trafficking. But the idea that you were going to cover an entire country and really an entire region because I had all of Latin America and the Caribbean as my beat – that was overwhelming, and I, I could never relax because I, I always felt something was probably happening somewhere that everybody knew about except me, and I was going to be embarrassed because I was going to get beat on a story in my own territory. So you were you were doing a lot of things professionally, but you had some fun in Mexico City, and that's where you met your wife. That's a nice story. I... When I first moved there, I didn't have any friends. And to be honest, I kind of fibbed about my Spanish. I, I didn't fib, but I let them believe that my Spanish was better than it was. And at that point, sort of after being almost a year in Mexico City, I was very good in Spanish about ambush, rocket-propelled grenade, things like that, because I was covering the wars in Central America. I didn't really know how to speak about my feelings or my my heart. So... I went to the movies. I, I went to the movies by myself. That that tells you my situation in Mexico. I either was working or I was alone. So I, I went to the movies. I, I sat down, got my popcorn, looked around. I noticed there was this beautiful woman behind me. And I kept thinking about her during the movie. I glanced back a couple times and I thought, she's probably waiting for somebody because she's very attractive and nobody showed up. I she was bouncing her leg and uh, kind of nervous. I thought, mm, she's got to be waiting for somebody. But the movie ends. She's still alone. I thought, I'm going to go say something. And so I kind of practiced some witty remark in my lame Spanish. Get up to her. About to open my mouth and I chickened out. 
I thought, well, she probably got a boyfriend. Uh, it's too complicated. I, I'm embarrassed and blah, blah, blah. The typical male, female thing. It wasn't really about the United States and Mexico at that point. It was just a man and a woman. And we were young. So I went outside and I was admiring the city. It's a Mexico City is fabulous. It's it's all lighted up and buzzing all the time. And there are people out walking and arm in arm. And uh, there are modern office buildings mixed in with colonial style buildings, big palm trees. It, it's beautiful. I'm standing there, taking it all in. It's a, it's a fall night. I saw her again. She was waiting for a bus, the woman from the movie theater. And I thought, but this is a, this is a sign. Go, go do something. So I, I ran across the street and I, I realized running across the street that she was waiting for a bus, but there were two cars lined up in front of her and these guys were leaning out of the cars and going mamacita man subete they were trying to get her to get they were trying to offer a ride but it wasn't it wasn't nice it wasn't nicely done yes no no it was very uh but i i didn't feel like she was in danger i felt like she was in danger of being annoyed and they were i didn't think they were going to kidnap her but they, they were bothering her i went over tapped her on the shoulder and she jumped up like a foot and I said it's, it's okay it's okay and I I said in Spanish I meant to say I meant to offer my assistance but I ended up saying something like the bus I wait me come to you <laughs> go home and she just started laughing and at that point she was actually laughing a real laugh and she said yes I I it's okay if you stay with me thank you and the, the guys drove away we started talking and she said you know, do you have any friends in Mexico City in Spanish? She said, amigos. And I said, yeah, a few. And she goes, she says, amigos or amigas, male friends or women friends. And I said, no, just just male friends. I said, but would you be my amiga? And she said, encantada, which is like, you know, love to. And I, I, I almost fainted. It was so, so such lovely. a beautiful moment. And... We've been together now for 30 years. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Masters in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. the things that comes across in your writing is that on the one hand you are passionate about journalism about telling the story about doing everything that it takes to get something right even if it means going into a war zone or other scary place and working long hours so that's the one hand on the other hand you have this wonderful romance which has helped to shape your life and that's often at odds 
with the uh, intensity that a foreign correspondent has to have. How, how did you manage that? Is that something you were consciously dealing with all of your years of, 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 of travel and long hours? The first time it hit home was when the earthquake hit Mexico City in 1985. And I was covering the story, living there. But to me, it was a story. And it was a big story. And there was a lot of pressure from the United States for more and more information about what was happening. And I was responding. I wanted Maru to help me, my wife, Maru, to help me do the story because it was overwhelming. She thought I was uh, being cold and callous and could I not see how everyone was suffering and including her. And so I resigned to myself that this was some sort of difference and it grew then the longer we were together and then when we had children especially, I felt this terrible tug between my responsibilities to her and our children and my responsibility to the job. They never were lined up. It, it was always one or the other. And I, I felt there was sort of a work-life balance, but when a big story happened and I was sent, the scale broke and there, there was no work-life balance. It was just the work. It's a, it's a challenge that I think many people deal with. But when you're going into danger and when you're leaving and nobody knows when you're coming back or um, what's going to happen, and in some ways it's even scarier, I think, than some people in the armed forces because you don't necessarily have the structure and the information system. So it 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 is a challenge. I thought you um, showed in, in the book how you have two intense um, passions, and, and you've been able to navigate them. So you did some really um, tough reporting in Latin America, and then from there they sent you to, um, to Washington to cover the Pentagon. And it, you wrote in, in the book that when you found yourself at the Pentagon, again, uh, in a very foreign situation, you decided to cover your new beat like you'd uh, cover a strange new country. How did that work out? I had never been in the military. I didn't really have many friends that were in the military. I was born after Vietnam. or I, 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 By the time I was draft age, the draft was ending. So I, I missed military service. When I was assigned to cover the Pentagon, I, I thought, I'll just read a few books and uh, interview people and but I was thrown into it right away with a big story about the United States shooting down some planes over Libya. I was way in over my head. But then when I stepped back and thought about it, I thought, well, like, these are people who, they all wear uniforms, like a local costume. They have their own way of speaking, lots of acronyms, like their own language. They have a very strict social hierarchy like any society. And so it all kind of made sense if I could treat this as a foreign place that I was visiting and try to learn about. And I always went to foreign places with uh, excitement and interest and an open questioning mind. It worked perfectly. I, I didn't have any preconceptions. I didn't 
uh, have any judgments about them. I really was just trying to be receptive. And but it, my knowledge was so limited that I I had to make a chart of all of the ranks, and I I shrunk it down on the copier at the office, and I made it fit in the pocket of my suit coat. So when I would see somebody in the hall at the Pentagon, a, a guy in a green uniform, silver bird on the shoulder, I would look at my little cheat sheet, see silver bird, colonel, and say, oh, hello, colonel. I mean, that's how bad it was. But, but that's that was very innovative for, for and, you. But, but that's the exciting thing about journalism, too, is that you go with a, a beginner's eyes and you see things that that – people outside of the military say don't see. And a lot of times people in the military didn't see because they took it for granted. But when you come in with fresh eyes, you see things that new. So what you try to do is get to the point where you're not so new that you're naive or you make mistakes, but you're not so familiar that you become jaded and you and you don't see things. So you made it clear in the book how you really, really try to come in with fresh eyes and be very, very careful, and you get it right, that accuracy matters immensely. It's part of the mission. But sometimes just being accurate, even that's not good enough. You you talked about when you were covering some of the first women to be in combat and how, although you were accurate, it it was tough on on some of the people involved. Can you tell us about that? 1989, the United States invaded Panama to overthrow Manuel Noriega, who was the dictator. The I went several days after the invasion. I I was drove up to Quarry Heights in Panama City, which was the military base where the U.S. operation was headquartered. And there was a MP there at the gate, and she asked me what was I doing and who I was, and I showed her my ID, and she went through my stuff to make sure that I wasn't carrying a weapon or anything. And I said, really, just being nice, because she was at the headquarters where I figured there had been no action, and she was female. And at that point, the, there was a ban on women in combat. They, women were expected to be safe they could participate in military life but they were there were few of them and they were banned from combat so but i said like i said to all the troops that i met i said so soldier did you see any action and she smiled and said a little bit and i said really and i said what happened and she said well i i can't tell you you'd have to talk to my commanding officer she's up on the hill i said your commanding officers also female they all said female instead of women Yes, she's a female captain, Linda Bray. I went up to Quarry Heights. I found a public affairs officer because we needed permission to speak to soldiers. I knew something was up because I I knew that women weren't supposed to be in combat, but here now I had two who were in combat. I told the public affairs officer there was an MP commander I wanted to talk to. I didn't get into the women part of it. I wasn't lying, but I wasn't fully truthful. He said, fine, go talk to the MPs. I found her. She was very uh, reticent about talking. She knew that she was supposed to talk to the media. That that were their instructions, but she didn't think that anything big had happened. I, it took me at least an hour to get the bare facts out of her. 
And the facts were that she, Linda Bray, was a 29 years old commander of 120 MPs, including about a dozen females. They saw action at three different locations in Panama. And at, she was at a command post when the invasion started. She realized that some of her soldiers were encountering more opposition than they inspect, expected at a Panamanian military barrack that was also the home of their military dogs, the police dogs. So there was a kennel and a barracks there. She drove over in her Humvee, crashed through the gate. They, the Panamanians were firing at them. She fired her weapon at them. Her troops were firing. This sort of went on during the night. The next day, the they went in and the Panamanians were gone. But I then realized, well, this is very unusual that not only were women in combat, but this is a woman leading troops in combat. I thought I should get some more examples, though. So I drove around Panama. I found another dozen women that saw action. I interviewed probably 25 people altogether, went back, wrote the story about women participated fully in the invasion of Panama. And that was my story. Linda Bray was part of the story, but she wasn't the main part. The next day, I called the Pentagon on something else. I'm still in Panama, but I called up to the Pentagon to get information about something. And a, a female major from the army, she said, man, you you kicked up a hornet's nest around here. And I thought, uh-oh. And she says, oh, no, it's great. <laughs> And what she was feeling and what all the soldiers felt was that, yes, this happened. The women behaved the way they were supposed to be, the way they were trained. They did well. That was the story that I wrote. Well, the Army was torn about the reaction because pretty soon Linda Bray was on all of the talk shows. She was uh, the topic of the White House briefing that here was this heroic woman who led her troops into battle and uh, the army was feeling, well, on the one hand, we're proud of all of our soldiers, but we don't want a single soldier getting so much attention. And we don't want this whole issue of women in combat to overshadow our largest military operation since, since Vietnam. So they leaked a story to a rival publication that said, my original story about women in combat was, quote, grossly exaggerated. That was like a kick in the teeth to me. I had never been a victim of friendly fire like that. And I agonized about my story. I went back word for word trying to think, you know, did I exaggerate? For example, I called it a fierce firefight. To me, that may be redundant that any firefight is fierce, but it didn't seem exaggerated based on what the women who were in the firefight told me. But again, I wasn't there. I was basing my story on what they told me. And I agonized, really. Did I exaggerate? Did I try to tell a better story for my own benefit than they described? And I felt like I hadn't. But Linda Bray got chewed up in the crossfire. She... Her commanding officers reacted badly. They lectured her about, you know, why was she seeking all this attention and 
why drawing all this attention to herself when she was not. It was completely on me and other reporters for bringing it out and focusing on it. She went back home, tried to return to normal. She had hoped to make her the military uh, her life career. Basically, she felt that she was driven out and she quit. She was she was disabled also because of she had her hips had been injured not in Panama but before and she took a military uh, a, a disability discharge and and left the army and went into a career in security but her career really was ruined by what happened and which to me was so ironic because I was just trying to point out something that happened where she behaved excellently and honorably and and fought well and got all of her troops home safely i felt i had done a good job as a journalist expo- a journalist exposing this but the whole experience was bad for her and i i really never intended it that way the the passion the the caring you bring to the ethics of journalism um, come across in you know everything you write and it's um very i don't know inspirational i think for um those of us who are already fans of journalism and 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 regard good reporting as so vital to democracy but these days journalists are under attack in in so many ways it it must be um mighty discouraging for young journalists or or for students who are thinking about becoming journalists. Do you have any um, words of advice or or encouragement for people who might be thinking about a career in journalism and are just not sure if it's uh, it's worth it or it, or maybe it's not even possible to to be the kind of um, journalist that that you write about in your book? I would say more even than the journalism part, the scary part now is the business part, that what's broken is the business model that always supported quality journalism, and it it's not resolved yet. So I think the, when I talk to students, they're worried about, can I, can I actually make a living doing this, or am I going to end up just being a blogger who doesn't get paid and has to work as a waitress on the side? That is a real question. And I, I tell people that if you think, well, maybe I'll be a journalist or maybe I'll be a rocket scientist or, uh, you know, design some new algorithm for Amazon, then you should do one of those. But if all you can think about, all you've ever wanted to do is journalism, then you should go for it because this is a super exciting time. Now it's a place where a revolution is happening. We, no one knows how it's going to shake out. I'm positive it'll shake out in a good way, but you can't know. And if you start a job as a reporter now, chances are you'll work for a company that won't exist in 10 years, might not exist now. You could be the one who starts the new company. So to me, the scary thing would be to be 40 and a journalist now and thinking I've invested so much, but I'm not sure about the future. But if I were 20, I'd think, and I really wanted to do it, I'd go for it. 
I think going for it sounds pretty exciting. I, I agree. This is the beginning of, of something new. We just don't know what it is yet. Well, this is a good note to end on. I think it's a, um, a wonderful book. Let me repeat the title. Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I find your um, stories fascinating, and uh, it was an honor to have you here today. Thank you, Beth. Today we've been talking with journalist and author Peter Copeland about the enduring values of quality journalism. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Today's career tip is that you can overcome immense challenges if you are clear about your mission. It's important to remind yourself regularly why it is that your good work matters. If you've enjoyed our show, please tell your friends. And if you have suggestions for making this podcast even better, please email me. You can get in touch with me directly at beverlyejones at me.com. That's B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-E-J-O-N-E-S at me.com. Thank you.